2: my name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society, I am the host on the channel, and today we are pleased and indeed honored to have with us Master Historian Professor Martin Rady. Professor Rady is Maserak Professor Emeritus of um, at University College London. He is one of the leading academic specialists on Central European history, and today we are discussing his latest book, The Middle Kingdom, A New History of Central Europe, published by Basic Books. Welcome, Professor Rady. Thank you very much and welcome to you and to your listeners. Thank you. Uh, professor, why did you write
1: this book? Um, because I've been meaning to write it for more than 30 years. Um, I, my college from 1990 onwards was lecturer in Central European History. Then I gradually made my way up the academic ranks to become professor of Central European History. Uh, and I thought it was probably something I should do to write a history of Central Europe. Um, the reason it took me so long was quite simply a lack of confidence. Not that I didn't know enough about Central Europe, uh, but more that I didn't know enough about Western Europe, Eastern Europe, the Balkans, to be able to be able to really point out the main dissimilarities, the main points of exception that hold Central Europe together. Um, I'm still not confident that I know enough, but there comes a point when um, one has to put one's anxieties aside and get down and write it. And it struck me beyond that, uh, beyond that that personal commitment, um, that I was a bit unhappy with the way the definition of central Europe was looming um It's been moving in that direction for for virtually forty years but Central Europe was becoming um too contemporized in its um in, in what people understood it as being they understood it as being in the first instance in the nineteen eighties as that part of the uh, communist bloc that was not part of the Soviet Union that wanted to go its own way. And recently republished has been Kundera's book on Central Europe, Milan Kundera, in which he talks about the captured West, that this was, Central Europe was a part of the European mainstream part of Western Europe, is his understanding of it, that had been captured by the Soviets and needed to go on a quite different trajectory. So that was the first idea, that Central Europe was really about Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia as it was. Um, And that idea gained currency in the 1990s, as the idea of Central Europe was promoted essentially is the waiting room for European Union accession. And when people talked about Central Europe, they meant the new accession states. Now, I was unhappy with that direction because historically, when people have talked about Central Europe, they've almost always talked about uh, or talked about the region, essentially from the Rhine to the Carpathians. They've included Germany. They think Germany has been seen as one well of the major parts of Central Europe. And there are a lot of parallels between developments in Germany and or the German lands and the lands to the east, which means that they can be considered as part of a common region. And I wanted to really explore those trends and develop them. And that is why I decided to write this book.
2: How would you say, uh, I'm sorry, what was Central Europe's experience of the Roman Empire? Well, I mean, it, it, it differs in a, a number of different ways. Um, large
1: parts of it are not included. Um, so most of Germany is not part of the uh, the Roman Empire. Uh, Poland certainly isn't. Um, Bohemia is interesting because if you look at any map of the uh, Roman Empire, you'll see that Bohemia uh, is not not there. What is now the Czech Republic, is not there. But in fact, there are a very large number of Roman forts um, in, in Bohemia that are gradually being excavated. The Romans don't just stop at the border. Their cultural impact, of course, is significant way beyond the border, but they've actually got military outposts there. And the same applies to Hungary. Hungary west of the Danube, is um, is part of the Roman Empire, but the area between uh, the Danube and the Carpathians, which is normally left blank on maps or with the word Salnations put across it, um, that actually is their their roadways that cross it, uh, their forts and stockades within that area that the Romans have, um, and they enclose the whole area within a defensive wall. So, in other words one can see that the Roman Empire is larger than just the boundaries of the Roman Empire. Its influence, both culturally and militarily, extends way beyond that. Um, So that was the experience of it. I think more particularly the, the more important experience is what happens when the Roman Empire falls. Because from roughly three the 370s onwards. The Roman Empire is under enormous pressure as a consequence of population movements on the Western steppe and in what is now the area of of, of Poland. Uh, And this is prompted, uh, in the main part, by the movement of the Huns behind them. Um, and The people, the Germanic tribes, and we can use that term fairly broadly, German tribes, such as the Franks, Thuringians, um, Saxons, uh, they're set in motion, but so are Germanic tribes that come from the Baltic, the Goths. Um, They've actually moved in a sort of circular movement from the Baltic round onto the Western steppe, uh, and they are hit by the Huns, and the Goths together with other German tribes, begin pressing on the Roman Empire. And ultimately, they will bring the Roman Empire down. Most famously, in 410 AD, the Visigoth uh, leader, uh, Alaric, pillages Rome. Um, Finally, in 476, the uh, Roman Empire in the West dissolves itself. Um, The last emperor, goes off to a villa in Naples with a large pension, and that's the end of the Roman Empire, and power is handed over to the Germanic chieftains, who occupy a large chunk of the Western Roman Empire. Uh, So in a sense, the, the Roman Empire occupies a chunk of Central Europe, but more particularly, it is the fall of the Roman Empire that begins the churn of peoples that will go on, more or less for a millennium. A churn of peoples that will um, uh, transform the population, linguistic, and cultural makeup of Central
2: Europe. How did Charlemagne's military expansion into Central Europe affect its future development? It's, it's Charlemagne's
1: Charlemagne's conquests are. Um, are enduring in some respects and not enduring at all, frankly, uh, superficial in others. I mean, the extent of Charlemagne's empire is really quite enormous. It reaches up to Transylvania. It crosses what is now Hungary, and it is in parts of northern Serbia. Uh, we know that shortly after his death, the Frankish leader, the Frankish monarch, is negotiating with a Bulgarian Khan. Uh, about the shape of, um, of, of, of Central Europe or where the boundary between the Frankish lands, i.e. the lands that have been extended by Charlemagne, the Frankish lands and the Bulgarian lands should begin. So it is quite spectacular in the studies. But of course, with the continued eruptions from the east, uh, many of those territories are lost the most important area of expansion really is what Charlemagne does in what is now Germany. He takes over what we call Saxony. He takes over essentially uh, Northern Germany. Northern Germany had been um, uh, was under uh, pagan rule by Saxon German chieftains and Charlemagne is able to get rid of these replace them with his own uh, appointees and extend the power of his empire right over in the northeast and thereby establish uh, a new boundary which cuts through the heart of Central Europe the rest of his territories over towards Transylvania they will just simply fold and they will disappear um, and they will be taken over by um, moving Slavonic tribes that are able to reassert their uh, political and military primacy
2: um, after his death. Why do you call feudalism, quote, an ugly but useful word, unquote? Uh, because
1: it can mean very, a large number of different things. Um, people would use it as uh, a pejorative, um, they'll talk about sort of, um, relations even today as being feudal, um, but, um, people will be, you know, that, that, that country villages will be dominated by feudal relations. So, in a sense, it's a misleading. it's a big blanket term, uh, but it can mean two different things. And this is, I think, is the problem. Uh, it can mean, on the one hand, a system whereby... Land is apportioned to retainers in return for some form of military service or payments in lieu of military service. So it can mean something affecting the elite. And at the same time, it can mean something that you should probably know as manorialism, which is relations on the land, the relationship between a landowner and his serfs. So it's a very, very broad term, but it's useful in some ways as a shorthand for describing a system, an economic and social system that rests on land ownership and the distribution of
2: land. How important to the development of Central Europe was the German immigration of the medieval period?
1: Um, well, it transformed linguistically in the first place uh, a very large chunk. Of Central Europe, we'd have to bear in mind that east of the river Elba essentially has, is not, it, it belongs to pagan principalities. We shouldn't, by using the term pagan, diminish them. They are very powerful, uh, well organized principalities, the principalities of the Abadrites, for instance, um, of the Pomeranians. Um, all of this area east of the Elbe is empty land. It's land that is large, partly masterless, but it is there for the taking and from the tenth century onwards tenth and early eleventh century, we see a movement across the Elbe, which is dominated by Germans who are going further east into Central Europe in order to set up farmsteads and exploit the countryside. This is very, very underpopulated territory. That's why I used the term earlier of masterless. We can talk about powerful kingdoms, but these kingdoms have got um, uh, uh, great um, spaces within them of rural underpopulation, and these are now taken over by Germans, um, and they are reorganized and um, brought into a they're Christianized, they're economically modernized, and they begin to take on the trappings of Western nightly like, culture. The, the numbers, I mean, if I give you this one number, that the number that one normally has for Silesia, which is um, uh, Uh, southwestern Poland nowadays. Um, This is opened up to German immigrants by the Dukes of Silesia who want newcomers to populate their territory and begin to take it and begin to economically modernize it. And during the course of the 12th, 13th centuries about 400 knights, German knights, come in. Now that doesn't seem a very large number. But each of those German knights is going to be bringing with him a large retinue. He's going to be bringing with him, in most cases, his own peasants. He's going to be setting up not just farms. He's going to be setting up big agricultural enterprises. So we're talking about 400 large agricultural enterprises coming into Poland with, under German leadership, with a German workforce. And that will transform linguistically Silesia so that effectively it becomes a half-Polish, half-German-speaking area and a source of contention right through until the middle of the 20th century. And linguistically, one has a transformation. Uh, But at the same time, we have a cultural transformation because these people are bringing from a culture of knighthood. They are bringing in their own laws, and they are bringing in their own type of settlement. And this is very important indeed, because the settlements that they establish, in order to attract peasants, have to be largely self governing They have to live by their own local laws, and they have to have a system of land inheritance that ensures that farmers can pass their properties on to their descendants, that if they have no descendants, to whosoever they like. So in other words, you have to give really quite considerable rights or legal autonomy to these communities if you're going to get settlers coming in. And that is one of the most important features of Central Europe. It applies not just to uh, the areas of settlement. It applies outside the areas it's um, and it's one of the most important features of Central Europe is the very, very considerable autonomy that exists in respect of the villages and local rural communities, precisely because of the terms of the original way the land was populated. And of course, we could say that, you know, um, a German knight immigrating into Poland is going to give concessions in order to win peasants. But the Polish landowners who are in his neighbours are watching what he's doing. and They're watching their peasants drift off to see if they can get um, uh, tenements on the German knights property. So they start emulating and giving the same concessions as the peasants have got under their German masters. And they call this going to German law. That is the term that they use, and that the settlement, therefore, of the legal transformation of a large chunk of Central Europe is to German law. It is not something that is carried purely by newcomers. Existing people turn to German law in order to better their conditions, and landlords give them those rights in order to keep them on the spot,
2: isn't that also the case with uh, urban settlement and particularly self-governing? Uh, what we call cities.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's if you're going to get cities to prosper, wherever you are in in Western Europe, uh, in Europe, Western or Central, you're going to have to give quite considerable rights of self-government, uh, and that is what happens uh, to uh, the towns in. Uh, Cities in uh, the German lands, in Poland, uh, Hungary, Transylvania, they're given very considerable rights indeed uh, in order to um, encourage settlers to come, but also to encourage business operations. And the critical thing you need to be able to do there is uh, establish um, very loose terms of land ownership, Uh, you can't, for instance, start saying, which you've got in the countryside, that in order to sell a property, you have to have the permission of all your relatives, something they had in Greece until recently. Uh, You can't have a system like that because you've got to put up land as collateral. So on the whole, they uh, they give very considerable rights of uh, 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 very considerable legal freedoms to newcomers in the cities, precisely because they need mercantile wealth.
2: How important, following up on this question, was the Armenian um, presence in Central Europe, and how quickly did they assimilate and integrate into the surrounding um, areas? Well, the, the
1: Armenians, they're a very, very small population, we're talking of um, only a few thousand uh, they arrive during the, um, they've always been there, um, but they come in larger numbers during the 11th, 12th, 13th century as a result of changes in the Middle East, the destruction of the original Armenian kingdom, and then the difficulties that the replacement kingdom, kingdom of Armenian Cilicia, which is uh, roughly where Syria is, the difficulties that that faces from the soldier of Turks. Uh, they are a, um, uh, a community to the extent that Armenians have relatives, business partners, old associates throughout Europe, and they're able to uh, make trading arrangements. Um, what I haven't found with them is that, which one might expect is that they're involved with slave trade, uh, I would expect a lot of um, uh, diasporic minorities will be involved in the slave trade simply because they have the connections. I haven't, I haven't found any uh, suggestion of there of that. Uh, there may be some proselytization, uh, but the only case that I've found, and I don't actually believe it, is in Iceland, which is a long way off. Uh, but there is this. There's one historian who suggests that Armenians are active in in Iceland. It's possible. We know that Greek Orthodox monks are active there, um, but the Armenians themselves are are fairly small. They will grow. They will. Um, they're still present in Central Europe. Um, they have a. They came to terms around 1700 with the Catholic Church. So that they are now in communion with it as an Armenian Uniate Church. Um, so quite separate from the Armenian Church in in Armenia, uh, they don't practice, for instance, animal sacrifice, which the current-day Armenian Church does. But the Armenians are, are are have their communities of congregations, but they very rapidly assimilate into the majority culture, and uh, they're normally only distinguishable really by their surnames, which tend to be distinctive. Um, And um, uh, they have largely um, always been a very small minority, and they are becoming increasingly smaller.
2: Why don't you employ the term Second Serfdom in your text? Um, Because, well,
1: because that would require uh, a lengthy disquisition on... Marx who first coined the term, Um, and I don't think readers would particularly want that. And the difficulty with it is is that second serfdom uh, implies a first serfdom. Let's just go through the, the basic chronology. The argument that Karl Marx had was that people were serfs in most of the Middle Ages, but under the impact of commercial and capitalist relations, they become much freer during the uh, later Middle Ages, uh, and that um, uh, um, rents become payable in cash rather than as a consequence of, rather than through physical labour, labouring on the Lord's estate, so that we end up with a much, in Central Europe, a much freer peasantry in the later Middle Ages. Then Marx argues um, agriculture becomes commercialised and capital capitalistic in Central Europe from about 1,500 onwards. And as a consequence, um, the peasantry return to the condition of serfs. They become serfs again. This is their second serfdom. And that as a consequence, they are tied to the land. They are, which means they're unable to move. They're unable to escape lordly burdens and they have to therefore uh, uh, labour on the Lord's fields for three, four, five days a week. And that is what Marx calls the second serfdom, a product of capitalised agricultural relations that begins uh, in the 16th century. Now, the difficulty with this is that he uses the term second, and um, it's not particularly evident that uh, peasants are tied to the soil, in the Middle Ages, nor that um, uh, that they are forced to perform onerous conditions and onerous obligations on the Lord's fields. Um, It's not obvious that they aren't using um, uh, cash as form of a rental system. And if they're not using cash, then they're certainly using kind. And an awful lot of the contracts that we have from the Middle Ages suggest that peasants are required to uh in the main, um uh uh, provide natural rents to the lord they're supposed to provide you know a hen at christmas a goose at easter um but their obligations are largely in the provision of livestock and there's no real evidence that they are tied to the soil in that sense so in other words You can't have a second service if there wasn't the first one.
2: Point well taken. Uh, How did politics change in Central Europe in the early modern period? Well, I think the most important
1: thing is is just to to close up a little on what we mean by politics. I'm going to talk about political institutions. Um, All one has in the later Middle Ages in Central Europe is, throughout the region, a... Quite substantial political dynamism, and it's located up through village assemblies that as I've mentioned, but it's located through regional assemblies. No, there's things like um, uh, uh in Poland, through diets, there are hundreds of diets that meet in the area of the Holy Roman Empire, every little um, principality, every little. Uh, statelet. will have its own diet um, in communities that exist outside the bounds of lordship, sort of free peasant communities. And I deal uh, in part with Frisia here in the book, this uh, great sea coast north of the Netherlands, which pre- results in them produces some quite extraordinary institutions. One has their Again, a tremendous number of village, local, and supra local uh, assemblies. So, in other words, one has a quite widespread um, uh, involvement of people in what we might call politics. Just to give one example um, the Hungarian diet. The Hungarian diet. Um, is open to all noblemen, and as many as 10,000 nobles will attend a Hungarian toilet in the beginning of the 16th century. I mean, a quite extraordinary uh, number of people massing in the open air or what's called the rakosh plain, which is now more or less where Pest is, Budapest, um, and they will there debate politics, and I put debate in, Inverted collars, well, it's largely a matter of shouting and um, booing and hissing the royal councillors that appear on the stage in front of them as part of this, if you like, um, a dialogue between governed and governed, uh, govern, the governors or the governed. Um, slash NBN50 to get 50% off. So in other words, one has a very, very substantial amount of political participation. I think that's one of the key points, one of the things that I've tried to stress in the book with two chapters dedicated to that point. What one finds is a steady roll-up of this participation. And we can trace its stages. Firstly, there's the the, the Roman law revolution. Uh, this is tremendously important and normally thought to be very dry and very boring because um, Roman law is inventive um, and it's, it, it creates distinctions that are uh, well, still in use today. You wouldn't be able to take a mortgage, for instance without the concepts introduced by Roman law, uh, because it makes the distinction between possession and ownership. Uh, And Roman law also emphasises the authority of the ruler. In the famous phrase, what pleases the prince has the force of the law. In other words, the prince can do what he likes. And it gives not just that individual phrase, it gives a whole vocabulary which we could call the checklist of princely absolutism. The right of the ruler by his own volition to do certain things. The power of the ruler to abrogate the law. The power of the ruler to um, uh, look after and be responsible for the common welfare, which of course is... Uh, a, a door to um, uh, uh, setting aside provisions that he doesn't find particularly uh, pleasing to himself. So, in other words, one has this arriving. And this, we, you'll notice in a very large number of statements issued by rulers from around 1500 onwards that they're beginning to use Roman law vocabulary. They're beginning to use the vocabulary of political absolutism. On top of that, one has the the reformation and the Reformation gives the princes additional powers because they can determine the religion of their subjects um, and they will do that throughout central europe it's the, it's the princes in germany and the kings and monarchs in uh, the eastern part of central europe who will determine the religious outlook of their population but more than that. Everybody thinks that the Reformation is about religion, but there's more to it than that. It's about, in the case of Protestantism, about creating godly communities. And one of the things that Protestant rulers will do is they will start regulating the morality of their subjects. They will start um, uh, uh, interrogating people as to the conduct of their way of life. They will start cracking down on uh, gambling, on drinking, on fornication. All of these will become now part and parcel of the ruler's responsibility, a new intrusive right that uh, allows him to interfere and, if you like, meddle with the uh, the, the lives of, of his people. And then, on top of that, one has the impact of Uh, which again enhances the ruler's um, military power and his tax-raising power and then we start moving in from roughly the middle of the 17th century to new economic theories which stress that the ruler has the right and capacity and duty to improve the economy of his country mostly by encouraging the population to grow, but also by cracking down on mismanagement, on antiquated practices, uh, and that this is something that will be beneficial to the people as a whole. And rulers are able to use that as a means of expanding their power of supervision and expanding their bureaucracies to such an extent that the bureaucracies now uh, begin to take the place of the diets. The diets have been sidelined. The diets are sidelined because rulers um, uh, under the impact of Roman law don't believe, don't feel they have an obligation to consult. Um, if the diets still control the purse strings, then their ways round that, which a lot of Uh, Rulers practice, namely that they just roll over the budget from one year to the next. I think they do the same in America uh, nowadays. Uh, And as a consequence, the diets become increasingly less important within the political structure of the state. Uh, And the diets become reduced to a shell of what they had been. People spoke about popular participation in the late Middle Ages, but do bear in mind that popular participation is expensive. You've got to be able to get to the diet, and it can be time-consuming, and it can come at awkward points of the year. And faced with the prospect of being able to hand over the obligation of attending a diet, handing it over to a committee of representatives, most people attending diets will actually go for that option. Uh, one by one across Central Europe we find that diets are replaced by committees of the diet that are often hand by the ruler, or the members of the diets, the committees, are given positions within the government. So very rapidly, diets in many places become uh, extensions of the bureaucracy. Uh, by the beginning of the 19th century, by which time this process is well advanced, uh, the diet of somewhere like Hanover is referred to as a secretariocracy. It consists of secretaries, it consists of uh, government officials, and that is increasingly the norm across a whole range of territories. Transylvania, as a dilemma that is reasonably powerful throughout the century. A third of its members are essentially appointed by the ruler. They are his placement. So, in other words, the growth of, of princely power uh, is the most important aspect of the early modern period and it manifests itself in the uh, growth of princely power at the expense of institutions, popular institutions of government.
2: How important was the Ottoman Turk factor in Central Europe's development in the 16th and 17th centuries? Well, the the Ottomans are important because um, they
1: seize a large amount of territory um, and uh, uh, half of Hungary is occupied by the Ottomans for on from a hundred um, for um, from 1540 effectively right through till the 1680s so there's a long period of, of, of rule uh, but I think the most important thing is the cost of it because molocks need to be able to build fortresses to withstand the Turks they need to be able to to um, uh, Gather armies, they've got to be able to fund cannon foundries, and all of this requires um, some tax ra- raising capacity. And one of the reasons that the Diets are able to carry on for so long when faced with this attack of royal absolutism is that they're able to couple their survival uh, to the purse strings they're able to say um we're going to continue to monitor what you're doing particularly in religious policy we're going to monitor what you're doing because without us you won't get any money and it's often the case that the diets are responsible for appointing the officials and paying the officials and we'll do the actual tax collection so they the, the turks give uh the rulers of um they make, they make life more difficult for the rulers in the contiguous areas because it makes them more dependent upon, upon the diets for, for funding. So I think that's important. Um, the, the boundary between the Turks and Central Europe is extraordinarily stable. Uh, once it's been effectively mapped out in the 1540s, there's very little movement. there are salients that come and go. And of course, in 1683, there's a big advance when the Turks break through and attempt to put Vienna under siege. But for most of the time, for most of the period, right through to from 1514 um, uh, uh, to roughly 1720, the boundary barely shifts and it barely shifts because it is a massively fortified boundary. Along its um, uh, 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 frontier, the so-called military frontier, between the uh, perhaps rogue forces and the Ottoman forces, you have a highly militarized zone. It is, um, uh, depends for manpower on soldier followers who are often moved in from the Balkans, to uh, establish their own little homesteads uh, and it depends upon um, very large forts that are strategically placed. Now these forts, are uh, we can still see them today, they are very difficult to remove because they are not built of stone with high walls, as one thinks of traditional forts, uh, because stone wall, stone shatters and tall walls are a very good target for cannon. They tend to be low uh, and made of brick, which doesn't shatter, uh, and backed up by solid earth walls or rubble, and they are arranged in a star shaped formation, often with bastions that project. Now, the importance of a bastion is that if anybody tries to go for, go for your walls, you can shoot at them from three sides, from one bastion on the right, if you like, one bastion on the left, and all the people manning the wall that they're trying to mount. To so in other words, they're very, very difficult to capture. The only way you can really take them, which is what the Turks are halfway to doing in Vienna, is you've got to mine them which means you've got to be able to put down a shaft and put in explosives and blow up a portion of the wall. But, of course, the defenders are going to know you are doing that. And they're going to, they're going to listen, because you can hear people digging underground. And they're going to run their own countermines. So in the case of Vienna in 1683, most of the fierce fighting is actually underground. And I think that just shows the sheer difficulty of trying to capture these fortresses, because you've got to go to a tremendous trouble to go and break through. And the problem that the Turks have is uh, their um, method of military deployment, their their method of moving an army, because they gather their army um, usually about April or May time. They gather their army at Adrianople or at Diene. Which is just west of Istanbul. And then they march up the old Roman road network here to the contested zone of Hungary and Austria and around there. And they've got magazines that, and depots all the way. They've got mobile, tremendous, if um, you uh, uh, train loads of mobile ovens in order to feed the troops. They've got tremendous logistical power. But at the same time, you can wait, waste a month, six weeks on the march up through the Balkans. You've then got to settle down to siege warfare. And by September it's the rainy season, so you're going to be marching away again. So they haven't got enough time to make a really effective breakthrough. So as a consequence, the area... Between the Ottoman Empire and the Habsburg Empire and, and the Christian powers, uh, this is it's not a, a this is a fairly stable frontier. It's a bloody frontier at times, but on the whole it doesn't shift fast amounts. The difference lies further east. Once you're outside, the the, the princes of Transylvania have got their own bastion fortresses that run along the um, southern and western flanks of Transylvania. Once you've passed that area, the uh, fortress line is very weak indeed. Firstly, it's mostly only at a few strategic points, and secondly, the military architecture that they're using is antiquated. They're best not using stone walls. Uh, so you don't have a fixed frontier in the same way. As a consequence, what you have is a much more fluid situation across the entirety of what we now call southern Ukraine. Southern Ukraine, the main antagonist there is um, uh, the main source of trouble, if you like, is the Khan of the Crimea. He is an Ottoman subject, he uh, depends on um, uh, uh, what's called a yarlik, a letter of authorization from the sultan to rule, and he is involved in slaving, and that is his major activity. And as a consequence, he is a he sends his raiders across what is now Ukraine, Poland, and Russia. He sends his raiders out uh, in order to capture slaves, um, and they have a very well-organized system of, uh, convoys, uh, holding pens, etc., in order to, um, plunder the area, particularly of its people, and they will shift their captives to the port of Kaffa. And the port of Kaffa, which is now Theodosia in the Crimea, the port of Kaffa is the great center of the slave trade and where many Central Europeans end up. Uh, The figures are really quite extraordinary that between 1500 and 1700, approximately two million people, uh, two million captives are processed through Kaffa and sold on to the eastern markets, the markets in the Middle East. That is the equivalent of the Atlantic slave trade in the 16th and 17th centuries, although we should add that the Atlantic slave trade expands very rapidly in the 18th century, uh, precisely the time when the Crimean slave trade is in decline. Um, But we have this very large number of people moving through in convoys and in uh, in shackles throughout Central Europe have been taken down to the Crimea. And when I say for processing, the normal routine is that uh, women and young girls will be assigned uh, to harems um, and the chaps. Um, if they're reasonably young, they will be castrated and sold on um as domestic servants. If they're older than that, then they will be put on to the Crimea's slave workforce of um agricultural um underdogs, if you like, and be ploughing the fields of the Northern Crimea. Uh, the Northern Crimea is the top two thirds, roughly, of the Crimea, which is very fertile countryside. Um this means but what, what there is, is a tremendous instability in all yeah. that area of um what is now parts of southern poland principally of ukraine a tremendous instability because there isn't a fortress cordon. there isn't a line of farmer soldiers to stop incursions, um and as a consequence uh We have a very shifting population and absence of political power, and it's no accident that this becomes the home of what are called Cossacks, but we could call them really masterless warriors, freebooters who live in their own fortified camps uh, and um, are able to resist incursions and operate in the interstices of political power,
2: uh, would you agree then with Timothy Snyder that the Cossack War of the mid seventeenth century was, in essence, a civil war between the Polonized Ukrainian nobility and the Cossacks? <laughs> um,
1: well, I think it's more—I mean, Polonized in the sense of Catholicized—because the 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 main put the main point of issue is that uh the nobility uh have become have adopted the Catholic faith. Uh they're attempting to impose a full Catholicism, uh the Uniate Church, on the the Cossacks of the Ukraine. Uh the Cossacks of the Ukraine uh, having originally been a very heterogeneous group, including in the sixteenth century plenty of Muslims. Uh, they become increasingly radicalised and increasingly um, orthodox and ferociously orthodox in their sentiments. And this will lead to the confrontation. But the confrontation has got more to it than that. The confrontation is also about um, the famous list. And the list is uh, those Cossacks who are, who are on the Polish payroll, and the Polish payroll means that they get a salary even if they're not doing very much, and it also gives them them and their family freedom from any from any landlord demands. And the main issue between the people like well Wellnitsky uh, and the um, uh, uh, Cossack champions, their main contention is that the list needs to be established and maintained and extended. And when that doesn't happen, they tend to go into rebellion in order to try and force it. The Tsar of Russia sees the opportunity, I think maybe Tsarina at this point, sees the opportunity, it just expands the Russian list, uh drawing most of the Cossacks onto into the Russian camp.
2: Uh, would it be? I'm sorry. Uh, why was religious toleration more evident in Central Europe than other parts of the European? I think mean, it's probably another way round. Actually, is why was Western Europe
1: so intolerant? Um, the because if one looks at, for instance, um, the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman Empire is pretty tolerant when it comes to religious diversity, particularly. When the people of the book, i.e., Jews and Christians, are involved, they are um, uh, have a privileged status as part of the Dhimmi, as part of the protected people uh, of the sultan. Uh, if one looks at um, Russian expansion into Astrakhan and Kazan, that it does, it does not involve the enforcement of orthodoxy. Mosques continue. Uh, Islamic worship continues. So if one looks around, just outside, on the edges of Europe, we see an awful lot of um, uh, religious toleration. The question, therefore, is why France, Spain, Italy to an extent, England and Scotland, why are they such unpleasant places? Um, and... I'm not going to answer that, but what I can say is in the case of Central Europe, the technique that they tend to adopt when it comes to a religious, a breakdown of um, religion uh, and disagreements, what they tend to do at that point is uh, expel the population, whereas in um, England and Spain, they drag Uh, people off to um, to bonfires uh, in Central Europe, they expel them. And what one has is a tremendous movement during the 17th century in particular, as people move from an area where they're no longer wanted and no longer protected and move into areas where they will be accepted. So that um, it's, on the one hand... It is a more tolerant place because it's Western Europe is the intolerable place, the intolerant place uh, but at the same time uh, the types of persecution that are practiced in Central Europe tend to be um uh much uh much kinder if you like they're not killing people, they're just kicking people out
2: was the alignment to differ? from in Central Europe as opposed to elsewhere in Europe? The Enlightenment... Well, I think they...
1: the Enlightenment in Central Europe builds upon uh, that trend that I previously mentioned, namely the strengthening of central power, of princely rule, uh, Roman law, religious um, and moral supervision... Uh, cameralism, the idea to uh, monitor the population and take the necessary acts to make an efficient population. Uh, but on top of that, what you have is the tremendous impact of natural law. And what natural law teaches, and this is particularly powerful in Central Europe, uh, through the writings of a man called Christian Wolf, who is probably the most popular philosopher of the time in Central Europe. but he is the most popular philosopher. Everybody reads Wolf, And he talks about uh, the obligation of rulers to see to the welfare of their populations. Wolff and plenty of other natural law theorists like him uh, argue that monarchs are not established by God as part of a system of divine right, that there is a contract between ruler and rule, and that rulers are obliged to do all they can for the welfare of the population, of their population, and as they themselves see fit. So in other words, it gives one more opportunity to rulers to extend their powers and push their own agenda and coerce people for their own good and that is really the difference between the enlightenment in central europe and the enlightenment in western europe and and in america in america and in britain and in france the stress is on individual rights in securing the maximum opportunity for the individual to exercise choice in central europe that choice is made for him it's made for him in his own interests by the government and by the ruler and this allows all sorts of intrusions and meddlings um the um the examples are, are really quite quite extraordinary in terms of um, uh, the reach of government during the 18th century under the impact of natural law and enlightenment theory, because everything is up for grabs, if you like. Everything becomes something that can be regulated. If you see that um, there's any type of Um, ...injustice or imperfection, then government legislates in order to remove that. Uh, And I say legislate, it does it by decree. This is the invariable instrument in the 18th century of um, government's legislative capacity. There's no bothering with parliaments and diets. They just issue decrees. They will issue decrees, for instance... Um, Maria Theresa gets concerned that people smoking pipes might um, uh, set bar the light. So she passes a decree laying down that all pipes shall have hoods. So she's describing you know, effectively people's smoking apparatus. Um, She finds she's concerned that people might go to libraries and uh, read books that are unsuitable for them. So she um, uh, lays down the qualifications for visiting a library. She's concerned that uh, uh, medicines are being distributed too frequently in pharmacies. So she has regulations concerning what pharmacies can sell. Her son, Joseph II, concerned about the You know, wood so that um, it may be used incorrectly. So he authorizes and that he orders that reusable coffins should be used, ones with false bottoms. You take the person over the grave, you pull a lever, the bottom falls out, and the the coffin can be used again. Um, The most famous, the only one example is uh, Carl Theodore of the Palatinate, who in, I think, something like uh, 20 years, publishes 120,000 decrees minutely organising people's lives, including the, the, of the five appropriate ways to measure the length of a fish. So, in other words, we're dealing with a vast expansion of power into every aspect of people's lives, now, we're so used to this nowadays in Britain and America, with government, federal agencies, etc., passing and interfering in every aspect of our lives, but we perhaps don't find this as extraordinary as we should. But for people living in the 18th century, this level of intrusion was really
2: quite exceptional. Why was Poland partitioned? Because they could
1: get away with it, and um, uh, um, it's it's it is extraordinary because this is the destruction of a historic European state. In the past, states had been destroyed, but they had been destroyed by the Turks and the Mongols. These are Christian European powers that are eliminating a state. I think the last time a state had been eliminated in Europe had been the Kingdom of Galicia Volhynia in about twelve fifty, when it was partitioned between Poland and the still pagan principality of Lithuania. I think that was the last time. Um, it's more, I think you have to think of the the three powers involved: they're Prussia, Russia, and Austria. Perhaps both. Uh, each of these is looking over its shoulder at the others. Prussia and Austria have fought a long series of wars for the possession of Silesia. Uh, Russia is beginning to push down the. Black Sea coast. It's interfering in Moldavia and Wallachia. It's beginning to be interested in uh, intervention in the Balkans. So Russia is a threat as well. And the fear always is, is that the other country is going to be the one that swallows up Poland. And the real problem is Maria Theresa. Maria Theresa from the around 1770 onwards, is beginning to cast her eyes on where Austria can expand. It's lost sight easier; it needs to make up territory. To begin with, she's thinking about moving into the Balkans and establishing some. One of her advisors has a bad cup scheme that she will defeat the Turks. Um, take Constantinople uh, and announce herself Empress of the West as opposed to the Tsar of Russia who will be Emperor of the East. This is not a mad scheme but it shows the extent to which Austria is looking for territory. And in the case of Maria Theresa, once this ludicrous scheme has been abandoned, she starts beginning to move into and have an eye on Polish territory, partly she's able to prove that she has a right to certain territories in uh, southern Poland, um, but she occupies them. And we know that Frederick Second King of Prussia, watches with considerable alarm as she takes over Polish areas um, And begins to convert them into parts of um, uh, 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 the Austrian administration and renames Polish officials as Austrian officials. So the fear exists that she's going to be the one who rolls up Poland. And as a consequence of that, um, the first partition is agreed on. And once they've agreed on the first partition, the others follow logically because Poland reforms itself and looks as if it might actually come up with a workable constitution. Uh, the Constitution of Third of May, 1791. It looks like it's going to come up with a reasonable constitution. So they partition it again. To remember that in 1793, when the Poles rebel, then they go for the third partition. So, in other words, uh, it's. It's a matter of... It, Poland is partitioned because people can do it, uh, but at the same time, it's part and parcel of great power rivalry. It is a quite staggering development because, as I said, a European state that has existed for should I say, 900 years or so is suddenly removed from the map. And it provides, as people begin to recognise it, even at the time, it is a frightening precedent because if states can be, if if Poland can be removed from like that, all states are under threat.
2: Would it be true to say that you are closer to Sir Lewis nemery's sceptical view of the revolutions of eighteen forty eight than Sir Christopher Clark's more positive view? i haven't
1: read christopher clark's book so i'm not quite sure what his positive view is um it's number number six on my reading list at the moment um so i mean the 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 revolutions of 1848 are particularly well organized um what simply seems to happen is that rulers are confronted by very large-scale demonstrations uh, and they don't know how to to react. They're very similar to communist bosses in the eighties, um, who, when when confronted by large scale demonstrations, just don't know how to act. Because in the past, demonstrations have all been about adoring the fate uh, fighting the communist party. It was the same in the eighteen forties. Rulers expect to be cheered they expect crowds to come out to go and, and congratulate them on the birth of a style or Victoria's war or a peace treaty. And what you have now is people on the streets in large numbers, middle class in many cases who are very worried about their investments, and working class and agricultural proletariat who are very concerned about food prices, and uh, wages and the impact of early industrialization. So, as a consequence, what you have across Central Europe is immediate concessions. Immediate concessions that start and give various forms of of liberal government, uh, liberal constitutions, a responsible government, i.e. governments that are responsible to a legislature as opposed to the monarch, uh, and you have this huge number of concessions. Uh, and the monarchs just give way and agree to these uh, middle class, predominantly middle class demands. The working class, as soon as they uh, receive um, wage increases, and as soon as the food supply improves, they, they go back to, uh, to work and the middle class have got the time to uh, meddle around drawing drawing up constitutions. Um, And when by about the middle of 1848, the monarchs begin to realise that it's really all over, that they can put the troops back on the streets again. And the phrase that I always uh remember is that really all that happened in eighteen forty eight was that the Lowits withdrew their troops from the streets until they found that they could put them back again. And that is in a sense what happens in eighteen forty eight. But I think just to look at the, the narrow uh range of events, misses the whole point, that eighteen forty eight energises new national communities. Suddenly, people have got heroes, they've got a story to tell, they've got um, a pantheon of intellectuals and of patriots around whom a national identity can begin to fuse. It's already under Napoleon. Napoleon has Already energized new national communities, partly inadvertently, partly deliberately. This is reinforced in 1848, and the nationalist genie, if you like, escapes from the bottle, and you're not going to be able to put it back very easily.
2: Would it be true to say that you are a revisionist in your view of the origins of the Great War?
1: Well, <laughs> uh, i think revisionist is 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 too grand nobody knows how the great war began uh everybody's got a diff- different theory it's rather like you know the manager of the english football team everybody's got a view on it um and um no what i do is try and put it in the central european context and um, the view i put forward is that there was a very considerable fear in central europe a uh, very great indeed particularly about Germany and a lot of people were particularly um, ill-informed about Germany and I use the example of the German Naval League which everybody was presented in Britain as an organisation of frothing German nationalists no, it was an organisation showing uh, films of faraway away places and distributing sailor suits uh, and there was a tremendous, you know, worry and concern about Germany. He was the new boy on the block. I mean, back in you know, 1815, Germany was a, a laughingstock. Um, but people continued to find it humorous right through the first decades of the 19th century. It was only with the great industrial takeoff of the 1840s, 1850s, uh, the building of railways, German unification, um, the burgeoning of the German population, the development of German colonies in Africa, people suddenly become very, very scared about Germany, Uh, and they attribute all sorts of designs to it. It doesn't help that the Kaiser is so garrulous and is always talking about countries that he'd like to invade. People believe this. I mean, he's just sort of thinking aloud. These are those Uh So this prompts um, uh, countries to think in terms of Germany as a danger, as Germany needing to be cut down to size. But, of course, once one moves into the sequence of events, um, uh, it, it's... There's an awful lot of misunderstandings um, of silly guarantees, and we can go around the houses trying to establish responsibilities. There are books on well, the Habsburg origins of the First World War, played in the Habsburgs, so or Russians. Um, There's a new book um, on the orig- Russia and the origins of the First World War, fairly new book by the but we can in- do no very good evidence to suggest that that if we're going to blame anybody, it should be Russia. So I I think everybody could be a revisionist when it comes to the uh, First World War um, uh, because there is no single vision that is there to
2: revise. How important was uh, Neumann's um, resurrection of the idea of Central Europe in this period? I think Uh, the date of publication of his book is 1915 uh, to it. It's, I mean, it's a curious book. I I must say
1: that I've never really understood it. Um, And I think there's possibly the danger that people read into it um, any sorts of things that he may not actually have said. Um, The first is that he he argues that in terms of Central Europe being um, made up of Germany and the lands to the east, and that these are complementary to the German economy. And that's probably about as far as it goes, as far as he's concerned. But people imagine it to be a blueprint for taking over uh, the eastern part of Central Europe. I don't think that was his intention. I think it was his intention simply to talk about the opportunities uh, that were economically and commercially available. But pe- people tend to, this is part and parcel of reading in um, all sorts of, um, uh, um, firstly, reading in all sorts of things about Germany to, because they're so concerned about its rise. And secondly, to locate somebody like and um, um, uh, to locate him in uh, part of the run up to the Second World War.
2: Why do you not uh, have a more positive view of the Treaty of Versailles in terms of its impact on central Europe? Well, I mean, I think
1: I don't have a positive view of it, and neither did the architects, Um, because within a few years, they're beginning to be aware of the the problems that they had left. Um, They're trying to do two things. They're trying to create a fair settlement, based on the principle of uh, national self-government. But at the same time, they want to create a caudal of um, reasonably sized states in Central Europe between Russia and Germany in order to keep, to prevent um, Germany and Russia snipping off these states if they were too small and too weak. They don't want to balkanize. Um, Central Europe. Uh, So they create states where in each of them, one third of the population consists of minority groups. And at a time when national sentiment is on the rise um, and the idea of national self-determination has been so embedded in political discourse, at a time like that, you you get to a situation whereby these isolated minorities are going to press for a territorial revision. So you've got, in, in Poland, you've got a consistent war throughout the 20s and 30s between the government forces and Ukrainian separatists. Uh, you've got a consistent problem in Czechoslovakia of the German minority Jews one third of the population, you've got the difficulties between Czechs and Slovaks. Uh, In Romania, you've got a population of another third of the population is um, Hungarian or German um, and is a uh, launching pad for um, pro-German sentiment and pro-Hungarian sentiment. So, in other words, you know, Versailles is neither one thing nor the other. It couldn't have been otherwise, probably. But we have to realize that its its limitations provide the entry point for German policy in the 20s and more particularly in the
2: 30s. How did communist rule post-1945 impact Central Europe? Well, I mean,
1: they... It's quite extraordinary. Um, I remember, I don't know how familiar you or your listeners will be with the, the British press. We have a newspaper called The Guardian, which is sort of left of center. And it was running features in the 1980s about the powerhouse of East Germany uh, and um, you know, this tr- tremendous. Um, uh, Economic strength that East Germany represented in terms of heavy industry, etc., and Mm -hmm. even as German unification began to come on the horizon in 1990, began warning about you know the combination of uh, German technical, uh, Mm -hmm. West German technical efficiency with the powerhouse of East Germany in terms of mineral production and steel, I mean, quite extraordinary. I mean, anybody who had been to Eastern Europe uh, during the communist period um, would realize that, you know, there was nothing there. Uh, The factories were... um, You go into factories, there'd be nobody working there. They'd all skived off. They'd all stolen the equipment. There was very little being produced. These weren't economic powerhouses. As Norman Stone put it, very aptly. The historian Norman Stone, um, when asked by Mrs. Thatcher, what West Germany would get by taking over East Germany, he said it'll get 12 Liverpools. At that time, Liverpool... Was a byword for um, uh, industrial collapse, and most of Eastern Europe was actually um, in ruins. People were talking of some tame left-wing academic in Britain going on about um, the success of collective farms in Hungary. There was no herd in Hungary, no cattle herd that was brucellosis-free. Um, Most of Hungary, which was the showcase for the West, I lived in Hungary in the 70s, was a showcase for the West, and it was a lot better than than Poland in terms of the provision of goods. But it was all paid for by Western loans. Um, And it was the same in Poland that Western loans were just going in to maintain this pathetic industry that the Communists had built. And what had to happen after 1945, after uh, uh, 1990, what had to happen was a complete alteration in the economy. And it was not done particularly well uh, because the people that came in, often Western advisers with no experience of Central Europe at all. There was one Western advisor that... Um, I heard about who he was told to go to Poland in order to make contact with the government and give it advice. And he took took a flight to, to Prague because he thought Prague was the capital of Poland. And this was the type of um, uh, uh, um ignorance that was through happening throughout the region. To give one example, one can close down the, the factories, uh inefficient factories. Uh, you uh, acid strip, and then you take off the bits that might be effective you close down the rest. Well, you can't defend. People do that throughout Western Europe, and most um, uh, um, Western advisors thought it was a bit like, I don't know, going to um, uh, a car producer that wasn't selling very well. You, you'd either you know, acid strip it and hide off the best bits, sell off the best bits, and close down the rest. And they they used these techniques that picked up in uh, uh, London or Texas and brought them over to Central Europe. But the difficulty was that factories weren't just factories. Along with the factories came not just pay and pensions, but creches, schools, holidays, shops. And if you close down the factory, you actually close down not just a workplace, but you enclose down a whole social area. And this was the problem that it left huge numbers of people bereft, missing not just a place of work, but missing schools, missing uh, uh, holiday provision, entertainment provision, their entire way of life came to an end. And they had been used to being cosseted. And this came as a tremendous shock to them, um, as well as the fact that the privatisation was not handled very well. Um, that all of the advisors, um misunderstood the value of these, of the the actual commercial value of the enterprises, overestimated them, tried to sell them, and then had to get rid of them cheap. It was done very badly indeed. And in the 90s, we have. Massive deindustrialization, de-skilling of um, Central Europe, uh, followed by once recovery begins. uh, And the recovery is thereby beginning to be there by 2000. So by 2000, Slovakia is the um, largest producer of cars per head of anywhere in the world. So there was a recovery. And that immediately is followed by uh, the banks and credit companies going in, and Central Europe gets its own subprime crisis, which blows up in 2008 and affects the economy there. And so the economy, the economies, went through a very very difficult period in the 90s and 2000s, and they're suffering again because of the war in Ukraine and the knock-on effects of COVID.
2: Was the fact that in Central Europe, the state did not precede the nation heavily impact its development? You know, I think that's pretty,
1: pretty fundamental, really, um, because it meant that the, the process towards a stable solution, whereby state and nation are contiguous, But this didn't happen in Central Europe. As a consequence, as I mentioned, it leads to the Second World War. Um, It leads after the Second World War to massive deportations and movements of people. I think we're talking about getting over 20 million people, certainly 15 million, 20 million people that displaced at the end of the Second World War, that moved out there, that Germans are shunted out of um, uh, Czechoslovakia. Um, Czechs are shunted out, for a time at least, for about a year, shunted out of Hungary. Um, Hungarians are um, pushed out of, of Romania. Um, one has a tremendous sort of, if you like, what was called later in the in the 1990s ethnic cleansing. One has an ethnic cleansing of century Europe that took place because state and nation did not coincide.
2: On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've be listening to New Books and History at Podcast Channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor, very, very much. Well, thank you indeed for listening. Thank you. <laughs>